Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 351. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Missed it by a day. Yes, Starship Sova's a day late this week. Sorry about that. It was just night shift dragging up my eyes all day yesterday and lots of things just kind of fighting against us to get the show out. And that was the case actually from Monday. You know, I could have actually recorded a few days ago, but a string of hideous night shifts. And then still we've got Reed still on holiday, the school holidays and one thing and another. And it was just a bit of a nightmare this week to try and get something done. So Thursday morning, I hope you will forgive me for that. I'll tell you what's coming today, sure. First up, we have Science News with our Gigi Campanella. Then we have someone who won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Rider in 1974. Hey, go on there. Lisa Tuttle with her The Dream Detective. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, first up, our very good friend, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and connubial meritations, my staggeringly lightotic listeners. And welcome to this August 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this overtly arousing science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. First, please forgive me for my voice. I am recovering from being ill. My son Eli, whom I have newly dubbed Typhoid Mario, has infected the whole family with some deadly summer flu. Although it put me in bed for two days... He showed almost no signs of having a 100-degree fever, cold, and cough affecting him at all. At any rate, uh, bear with me. Before I get on with all the nummy little stories of the night, I will answer email from several listeners whose memories are apparently very long. Every summer, I attend a scientific conference. In this year's meeting, I went to the American Society of Plant Biologists Conference in Portland, Oregon. It's a big, massive conference, which has over a 1,000 attendants. Several listeners actually wrote me to ask that I report on whatever conference I happen to be attending this summer. It was a nice gesture, and I applaud your interest, but some conferences actually lend themselves a bit better than others to being reported on. This conference was probably not one of the more gripping ones that I have attended. I was not exactly thrilled with the hyper-focus, in my opinion at least, of the physiology of non-biological environmental stresses. seems to me that an awful lot of laboratories are being funded at very high levels to examine every abiotic stress that you can imagine, from drought to flooding to aluminum in soil to, well, just about anything. 
However, that said, there were a couple of plenary session talks that I actually thought were interesting. And sadly, those talks were from an economist and a nutritionist. One of the big themes of the plenary sessions was feeding 9 billion people in 2050. How is that for a science fiction theme? There were actually two days of talks on this topic. Day one addressed actual biology. How do we grow more per acre? How do we engineer genetically more healthy plants? What new, safer, and faster methods can be used to genetically engineer crops? How do we get better at growing plants in inhospitable environments, etc.? The speakers were especially interested in what they called food security, which just means having enough food to feed the growing populations. They discussed growing enough food to feed the world, use of agro-industrial and sustainable methods of production, agricultural drivers in developing countries, and the nutritional demands of food security. So essentially, day one was how do we produce more food for all those new people being born? Day two addressed the quality of that food, nourishing 9 billion people. And the speakers were not just plant biologists. There was an economist and a nutritionist who basically told hundreds of biologists that they were idiots and did not understand the real world. Much like Jon Snow was told again and again by Egret that he knows nothing in Game of Thrones. Dr. David Jenkins, MD, PhD, and Doctor of Science, is a world-renowned nutritionist who has a post at the University of Toronto, has won the World Food Prize, and holds the Canadian Research Chair in Nutrition and Metabolism. He told listeners that there is plenty of food right now, enough to already feed 9 billion people. How is this possible? Well, first, we need to stop wasting food in industrialized society. We waste at least 50% of what we buy and just throw away. In part because food is so cheap, especially in the U.S., we buy a cheap hat of lettuce, assuming we will use it later in the week, and two weeks go by without the lettuce even being glanced at. Then we throw it away because it only costs a dollar or two. People do not do this in places in the world where food is expensive. In Japan, for example, the refrigerators are not the size of Hummers as they are in the U.S. They are quite small because the Japanese buy fresh food they need to cook meals from day to day to reduce waste and the cost of feeding their families. The second thing is, is we need to stop eating so much meat, not because Jenkins believes it's morally wrong to eat meat, but because we use a huge amount of arable land, at least 50%, in growing food for animals. So too much land is being used to feed animals as opposed to humans. Jenkins says if we cut down our meat meals in the West to at least once per week, it would not only be healthier for us, but it would allow more people in the world to eat by feeding fewer animals. Third, a huge amount of crops that could go to feeding people, such as corn, are being used to make fuel. By 2050, we may have to decide whether it's more important to make alcohol for fuel or actually feed other human beings. Finally, there's plenty of food in surplus throughout the world right now to feed starving millions. But for political and economic reasons, it's not being shipped or made available to people. That needs to change. Jenkins made it clear that he is not a socialist. He does not want to give away food. He understands that people labored and spent money to grow that food. But he does believe that a basic human right 
should be to have enough food each day to sustain your life. But the upshot is that the food is already there in a lot of that surplus grain. And part of the reason for this is government subsidies. We really need to get the government to stop paying giant corporations. No, the small farmer is a small proportion of that to grow things like corn. The other speaker at that plenary session was an economist who specialized in studying small family farms in Africa in the attempt to make their running more profitable. This speaker was Dr. Alan DeBrow of the International Food Policy Research Institute. DeBrow has a Ph.D. in agricultural and resource economics. He repeated much of what Jenkins said in his talk, but he added another fascinating component. Much of DeBrow's work has been trying to determine why household farms in sub-Saharan Africa are slow to pick up new advanced farming methods that would allow a great increase in farming efficiency and greater profits. He found that there are multiple political, social, and cultural reasons why the new technology is not adopted. And it's very complicated. There are even sexual and gender political reasons. He told one story about Ghana, where the married men and women kept separate farms and separate accounts, The men would not adopt any GMO crops because they were risk-averse and refused to try out anything that might lose them money. The women farmers, however, were more worried about their families and the overall economic state of the family. So they were willing to adopt GMO crops if it could profit and their children could eat better. And they did very well, getting a huge increase in their crop yields and profits. And... The men got angry because they had done so much better than their husbands. And the men seized the lands and the crops from the women. Actually, later, DeBrow told me in a conversation that this type of gender politics is not isolated to Ghana, but is common all over West Africa in general. So you see, the world is a complicated place. The one important thing that DeBrow pointed out is that there is a huge amount of arable sub-Saharan land in Africa that can support crops and is supporting crops now. But if we could convince all those primitive farmers to use more advanced methods, then Africa could feed itself in the next 50 years by increasing crop yields by 10, 20, or even 30-fold or more. Of course, Africa does need to straighten out some political issues, but we have time for that. Well, the upshot of the conference is that food should not veer into the Soylent Green territory by 2050 at least if we keep our wits about us and see if government policies can't be changed. Let's get on with the first official story of the night. It happens to be an update in the worldwide BPA catastrophe which continues to haunt us. If you don't remember, BPAs are a category of chemicals found in plastics and certain inks that mimic estrogen compounds. They've been linked to a myriad of health issues, including worldwide reduction in male sperm counts across the animal kingdom and potential increases in female breast cancer. So what's the latest BPA problem? Unfortunately, it has to do with something that uh, Brits call pot noodles, and we in the U.S. call ramen noodles. Yes, instant ramen noodles, the beloved cheap dinner of college kids and budget eaters everywhere, have been linked to heart attacks and diabetes, 
And before you freak out and swear them off for life, let me tell you the whole story. Dr. Hyun Jun Shin, who led the study on behalf of Baylor Heart and Vascular Hospital in Texas, said instant noodles appear to be damaging to both men and women's health, although particularly damaging to women's health. The study appeared in the July issue of the Journal of Nutrition. Shin basically pointed up two problems with ramen noodles. The first is that noodles that are not fresh are a serious health threat. Noodles, like many processed foods, are high in salt, and a diet high in salt can increase the risk of heart attack and stroke. Additionally, the body struggles to digest dried ramen noodles. Shin used a tiny camera to look at the digestive tract of instant ramen noodles and then compared that to the digestion of fresh ones. Many instant ramen noodles, he said, contain the chemical tertiary butyl hydroquinone, a food additive that is a byproduct of butane and used in the petroleum industry. He stated, quote, The most striking thing about our experiment, when you looked at the time interval, say one or two hours, was that the processed ramen noodles were less broken down than homemade ramen noodles, unquote. All this certainly did not thrill me. It never occurred to me that there were actually health issues with ramen noodles other than the obvious high levels of carbohydrate. Shin additionally did a statistical study of people who eat large amounts of ramen noodles to see if they were actually harmful. For the study, the researchers looked at the data of 10,000 adults between the ages of 19 and 64, collected via the nationally represented Korean National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey of 2007 to 2009. They found that eating instant noodles, ramen, lo mein, glass noodles, Thai noodles, or other noodles, twice or more a week, was associated with cardiometabolic syndrome, a collection of abnormalities affecting the body's cardiovascular, renal, and metabolic systems. So where does BPA come into all this? Well, Shin noted that problems from BPM might stem from the fact that most instant noodle meals come prepackaged in styrofoam, which contain bisphenol A, BPA, which is also why women could have been more affected in the study. But as I said before, it's not just the BPA. The ramen noodles contain plenty of unhealthy ingredients, including MSG and the chemical preservative, uh, tertiary butyl hydroquinone, and they're also high in saturated fat. Shin focused on South Korea because the country has the highest per capita number of instant noodle consumers in the world, and because in recent years health problems there, including heart disease and obesity, have been on the rise. But the findings appear to be quite relevant to consumers here as well in the U.S. The United States is now ranked sixth globally in instant noodle sales. The World Instant Noodle Association, yes, that does exist, found that the United States accounted for 4.3 trillion units sold in 2013, coming in just behind China, Indonesia, Japan, Vietnam, and India. What's the upshot of all this? Well, first of all, don't buy dried noodles that come in styrofoam packaging. And second, don't buy dried noodles that have lots of chemicals added to them like salt. Of course, you may be able to find your noodle fix in a noodle shop where they're made fresh, but I suspect that unless you live in a big city like New York or uh, you're from China or Korea, you're probably not going to find that very often.
Well, I love my ramen, and I'm not exactly thrilled with this finding. Next story. Plants can sense their leaves being eaten. Notice I don't say hear. They cannot hear. Plants cannot hear music. They can't hear being eaten. They can't hear thunder. However, they can detect vibrations. Dr. Heidi Apple of the University of Missouri has been able to demonstrate that plants can detect feeding sessions of insects. The work was published in the July issue of the journal Oecologia. First, Apple placed a tiny piece of reflective tape on a leaf. That way, using a laser beam, she could measure the leaf's movements as the caterpillar munched on it. After that, she recorded what amounted to the inaudible vibrational sounds of the caterpillar chewing on the leaf. She then played the recordings back to one set of Arabidopsis plants while silence was given to another set. To mimic the acoustic signature of feeding, she used piezoelectric actuators. These are tiny speakers that play vibrations instead of airborne sound. She says, quote, It's a delicate process to vibrate leaves the way a caterpillar does while feeding because the leaf surface is only vibrated up and down by about one ten thousandth of an inch, but we can attach an actuator to the leaf with wax and very precisely play back a segment of caterpillar feeding to recreate a typical two-hour feeding session. Unquote. Once she did that, she let the cabbage butterfly caterpillars eat about a third of three leaves on each plant from two sets. She gave the plants 24 to 48 hours to respond to the attack, after which the leaves were harvested. She then looked for a chemical called glucosinolate in the plants. Glucosinolates are common to the brassica mustard family of plants. They make mustard spicy and have anti-cancer properties and provide some of the health benefits to chocolate. Insects do not like the spiciness of glucosinolates, and when the levels of these are higher, the insects walk away or just don't start feeding at all. Well, the results were that plants with prior exposure to feeding vibrations released higher amounts of glucosinolate, while unexposed plants had lower levels of these chemicals. Apple concludes that feeding vibrations signal changes in plant cell metabolism, creating more defensive signals to repel the attack. So the take-home message for all of you who play music for your plants is that you may be inducing an anti-herbivorary reaction in your houseplants. So, at the very least, they're less likely to be eaten, at least if they're in the cabbage mustard family. Next are more updates on stories that we have been following for a while. Yes, exoplanets and Bigfoot. You may remember last October when I reported an international team had collected dozens of hair and tissue samples and were trying to demonstrate that some of them belonged to Bigfoot. Of course, not one of the samples was anthropoid in origin and suggested it might actually belong to Bigfoot. However, a cool result came out of that work. Dr. Brian Sykes of Oxford reports in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B that two of the hair samples do not belong to Bigfoot, but they do belong to another mysterious species. More on that later. Sykes says that he did the entire project because, quote, I was irritated that cryptozoologists kept saying that they've been rejected by mainstream science. At the time, I was perfecting a technique for extracting mitochondrial DNA from a single hair shaft. 
I realized I could do a proper scientific study. I wasn't looking for a Yeti or anything like that. I was just going to do a scientific review of the evidence, unquote. As I reported last year, Sykes and Dr. Michael Sartori posted a call for hair and other samples thought to be from Yetis, Bigfoot, or any other species unknown to science. The researchers would compare stretches of DNA to known species in GenBank, where there are thousands of species cataloged. He received hairs from famous expeditions, including a trek by the famous Sir Edmund Hillary. He also got hairs from museums, Buddhist relics, and quite a lot of material from Bigfoot enthusiasts in the U.S. He started with 95 samples, and then Sykes whittled that down to the 37 most interesting, and then from that 37, he was able to extract DNA from 30 of the 37. His latest paper from last month reports that most of the 30 samples turned out to be very ordinary animals in their natural habitats. The Yeti and Bigfoot hair samples turned out to come from bears, brown bears, black bears, polar bears, horses, raccoons, one human, some canines. The test apparently didn't narrow down if they were wolves or dogs. Cows, sheep, a North American porcupine, a Malaysian tapir, and a sarau. I'm not sure what a sarau is. I, I think that's similar to a goat or an antelope. However, two of the hair samples from the Himalayas were a surprise. These hairs, both brown, perfectly matched a short stretch of DNA from the jawbone of a 40,000-year-old polar bear, although the hair markers did not match modern polar bears. One hair came from an animal shot 40 years ago in northern India by a hunter who reported that it behaved differently from typical brown bears. The other hair sample was collected about 10 years ago in Bhutan, 800 miles from where the first animal was shot in northern India. Sykes says, quote, Our best guess is that the hares are from either an unknown bear species or a hybrid of brown bear and polar bear. Such hybrids are known in the Arctic but genetically resemble modern rather than ancient polar bears. If there's a Himalayan hybrid, it might have descended from a different long-ago liaison between the species, unquote. Since the result is preliminary and Sykes is an actual scientist and not a nutcase, he is planning an expedition to northern India to search for live bears. Sykes goes on to say, quote, The samples are from opposite ends of the Himalayas, so it's reasonable to imagine that there might be some still alive in between. I don't think the samples are a hoax, since they were collected decades and hundreds of miles apart and were provided by different sources. Plus, only an ancient jawbone is a genetic match." Unquote. He concludes by suggesting that this previously unknown bear species may be what people there have seen and reported as a yeti. He says that that would be consistent with those reports. Quote, the yetis have always been described as brown when they are seen. They are always brown. The idea of a white, abominable snowman came from TV shows and movies, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, unquote. Anyway, Sykes finally points out that, quote, I have not actually disproven that yetis exist. There's always some chance, however small, that the right sample just hasn't been collected yet. Now the Bigfoot and Yeti chasers can go back into the forest knowing that if they get a genuine sample, it can be identified and to a standard that everybody will accept, unquote. 
The next update is the exoplanet one I promised you. For once, this is not an encouraging one. This is a we-need-to-be-more-careful kind of story. In the July issue of Science, Penn State astronomer Paul Robertson and his colleagues reported the two planets considered among the most promising for life outside the solar system. Well, they actually don't seem to exist. The changing signals embedded in starlight that were attributed to moving planets may instead have been caused by, well, changing magnetic activity of their star. In this case, the star was Gliese 581. Although the study isn't the final word on these enticing yet controversial worlds, scientists say it reinforces the need for meticulous analysis to separate planet signals from those generated by spots and flares on stars. Robertson says, quote, This is a big warning concerning the interpretation of small signals as being planets, unquote. And that seems like an understatement. Gliese 581 is located about 20 light years away in the constellation Libra, in cosmic terms, that's pretty close. So it does make you worried about the planets around those more distant stars that are farther than 20 light years away. Wow. However, Gliese 581 is small and it's dim and it's similar to tens of billions of other stars in the galaxy. So you can see where astronomers might make mistakes. So how embarrassing is this? Well, in 2010, the discovery of Gliese 581G, the planet, which probably does not exist, grabbed headlines when co-discoverers Dr. Stephen Vogt of the University of California said, quote, the chances of life on this planet are 100%, unquote. Oh, seriously, dude, way to go out on a limb. That is not the way to keep credibility as a scientist. To make things worse for Vogt, Multiple studies have found no evidence for Gliese 581G, although you've got to give him credit because he has stood by his claim. Robertson, however, has put a nail in the coffin of 581G. He looked at data from previous studies using the radial velocity method of planet discovery. That's where the subtle tug of a planet's gravity causes the star it orbits to wobble, and you examine that uh, wobble. Astronomers can measure the wobble by studying starlight, which shifts color slightly depending on the direction of the wobble. Robertson set out to determine whether magnetic activity on Gliese 581's surface, a phenomenon similar to sunspots, could obscure some of the light and cause astronomers to incorrectly measure the wobble and perhaps mistakenly detect planets. Unlike previous groups that had looked at the data, Robertson and colleagues studied light emitted by energized hydrogen atoms as an indicator of Gliese 581's magnetic activity. The researchers found a clear link between the amounts of measured wobble and magnetic activity on the stellar surface. When Robertson and his team removed the signals thought to be from the star's surface, the evidence for three planets became even stronger. But the evidence for three other planets including 581D and 581G, almost entirely disappeared. Well, oops. Robertson says, quote, If you want to be confident you've found an exciting planet, then you have to do this type of analysis to make sure you're not being tricked by the star, unquote. As you can imagine, there's already controversy building between those who believe those planets exist and those who don't. 
The last story of the night, at least to me, falls into the Michael Crichton, what a horrible, potentially nightmarish idea line of science. And it all leads back to my first story about food. Imagine, if you will, a world in which you could lose weight simply by altering the flora of your gut. You would swallow a capsule with happy new bacteria that would block a high percentage of the nutrients getting into your body. And you would lose weight effortlessly while drinking chocolate malts and eating gut buster burgers. Sounds like a dream come true to everybody that I know who battles weight problems. Well, Dr. Sean Davies, pharmacologist at Vanderbilt University, has proposed doing exactly what I describe above in the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Investigation. Trillions of microorganisms comprise our gut's microbiome. It's a vast and diverse ensemble of microbes. They work together to help regulate our metabolic, neurological, and immune systems. It wasn't until recently the scientists really began to understand that we are a very complex organism made up of not just our own cells, but bacterial cells as well. However, it's thought that the imbalance of these microbial communities may cause obesity, diabetes, and even cardiovascular disease. Davies says, quote, It has become clear that the types of bacteria that are sitting in your GI tract have a fairly significant influence on your risk for obesity. So what we're really doing is hijacking them to help us in a way that they normally wouldn't. Essentially, we're converting the gut bacteria into a drug delivery system, unquote. Davies has modified a probiotic strain of bacteria, E. coli Nissel 1917, to express high amounts of a hormone called N-acylphosphatidylethanolamine, N-A-P-E. N-A-P-E is a natural compound released by the small intestines when fat is being digested, and it activates metabolites that send signals to the brain to suppress appetite. So far, so good. From Davies, quote, when people are eating high-fat diets or are obese, they are actually not synthesizing as much NAPE as they should be for that meal, so they don't have a sufficient feeling of satiation, unquote. The team tested their NAPE-expressing bacteria by feeding high-fat diets to healthy mice while administering the bacteria in drinking water. After eight weeks, the team noticed that mice treated with NAPE-expressing bacteria had only 50% of the body fat of mice receiving either control bacteria or just drinking water by itself. Davies' team also found a sustained reduction in food intake that lasted up to six weeks after treatment, resulting in lower body weights for at least 12 weeks after therapy. So why do I have a problem with all this? Sounds great, huh? Well, two reasons. First, it's just way too easy for me to imagine that Michael Crichton, Stephen King scenario where the newly tested bacteria gets out of control and ends up causing somebody to waste away to nothing and die of starvation while eating continually. Well, nobody has ever called me a Pollyanna. Okay, and also, here's the more likely scenario, and less silly, There is an evolutionary reason that humans store fat. At least in the industrialized West, we have not seen rampant hunger in a hundred years. We store fats for the times when food is scarce. Fat 
is an evolutionary aid. It is not a hindrance. Fat is a good thing. Fat is not a bad thing. Now we have lots and lots of cheap food. Remember my comments at the beginning of this segment? We in the West eat and get fat because we have so much energy-rich food that we don't even realize how much we are eating. A McDonald's Big Mac has enough energy to last you the whole day, and yet we eat this with fries and still eat breakfast and dinner besides. What if the biologists and academics at the Plant Biologist Conference are wrong? What if in 40 years we have 9 billion people and food does become scarce? What about beyond that 40-year mark? Imagine a world in which food is scarce and yet humans, because we tinkered with bacterial genomes, are no longer able to store fat. Fat may be a bane now in the West, but it was something blessed at one time, something needed. In a world of scarcity, humans would starve much faster because they dared to mess with a basic metabolic process. It's just something to think about next time you curse those love handles or chubby hips. I'm not exactly a lightweight myself, and I would love to lose 30 pounds, and I try all the time. But even I think that Davy's idea is a dark and dangerous one. It's just me. That's all for me for now. And as always, take care. Cut way back on those pot noodles. Don't count your planets until they're hatched. I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, James. Thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and it is The Dream Detective by Lisa Tuttle. I'll give you a little heads up about Lisa, and it's one. One of these authors that I've just been craving to get on the show, you know what I mean? Kind of little, one of the kind of the, the higher gods of the kind of science fiction world here is Lisa. Lisa Tuttle is an American-born science fiction, fantasy, and horror author. She has published more than a dozen novels, seven short story collections, and several non-fiction titles. She has also edited several anthologies and reviewed books for various publications. She's been living in the United Kingdom since 1981. Tuttle won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, like I say, in 1974. The 1989 BSFA Award for Short Fiction for In Translation and the 2007 International Horror Guild Award for Closet Dreams. And like I say... Big hats up to Adam for getting this and getting this on the show. Just amazing. Just brilliant. The story is narrated by Trendine Sparks. Now, I'm not going to read Trend's bio again, but there is a link on the show. And I want to just say is like, Trend has this pure gift of just kind of making audio books and audio stories, just taking you into the story, losing all your surroundings, forgetting everything in the day-to-day world and just like being absorbed by a story trend. This is a remarkable narration. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Dream Detective by Elisa Tuttle In the beginning, I wasn't attracted to her at all. Quite the opposite. I don't know if it was intentional on her part, and honestly, I'm not the sort of dick who always judges women on how hot they are. But if there's any situation in which a person's attractiveness matters, I think everyone would agree it's a blind date. 
Hannes and Marty, my so-called friends, so worried about my single state, had once more stepped into the breach and invited me to dinner to meet someone very special. They had introduced me to several very nice, lovely, smart, sexy women in the past, and all had been good company, even though there'd never been the necessary mutual spark that would ignite a love affair. But not this time. My first sight of Marty's old housemate Grace was of a lumpy little figure in drab, ill-fitting clothes. Her hair probably hadn't been brushed since she rolled out of bed. Her eyebrows looked like hairy caterpillars, and apart from a slash of bright red lipstick, she hadn't bothered with makeup. Couldn't be bothered was a good description of her in general, and from her sullen look, she was equally unimpressed with me. As it was only the four of us for dinner, I couldn't ignore her without being rude, but my first few attempts to engage her attention fell flat. Hannes kept the ball rolling with some stories I hadn't heard before. He's very funny, especially considering English isn't his first language, until Marty shrieked for his help in the kitchen and we were left alone together. So what do you do? I asked. I could have kicked myself as soon as the words were out. I didn't want to talk about my own tedious job, so why put her on the spot? She stared at me for a long moment while I tried to figure out a way of withdrawing the question that wouldn't make things worse, and finally she said, I'm a dream detective. I thought I'd heard wrong. Dream? She nodded. Detective, she added helpfully. If it was a joke, I didn't get it. You mean you solve dreams? What does that mean? I don't know. You said it. I didn't say I solve dreams. I solve crimes and other mysteries in dreams. What's your success rate? Quite good, actually. She had a modest face. Although I shouldn't brag, I have to admit I haven't done much of anything lately. She was playing it straight, so I had to do the same. But you've solved a few over the years. Oh, yes. How long have you been helping the police with their inquiries? She looked as if she was about to laugh, but stopped herself and simply shook her head. The police aren't interested in dreams. But, I mean, if you're solving crimes, dream crimes. What's a dream crime? She sighed as if I were deliberately obtuse. A crime committed in a dream? In a dream. That's what I said. This fey game of hers was really getting up my nose. It wasn't funny and it wasn't clever, if it was a game. Just checking, I said, but not in the real world. I was reminded of one of my favorite teachers by the snooty look she gave me and her retort. In your opinion, dreams aren't part of the real world? I don't know. You're the one who... You don't dream? Everybody dreams. You'd be surprised how many people say they don't, or that they can't remember. It's not for me to say they're lying, but forgetfulness can be a cover for things people find too painful to think about. I dream a lot. Since childhood, I'd enjoyed my dreams and enjoy thinking about them. If I rarely told them to anyone, it was out of fear that my descriptions would be inadequate and that they'd sound boring or nonsensical instead of the fascinating adventures they were to me. She leaned across the table, fixing me with eyes that were larger, darker, and more eloquent than I had realized. Have you committed a crime? In your dreams? I felt a sudden urge of adrenaline, as if she'd come too close to a deeply guarded secret. My heart was racing, and I felt a powerful urge to run, the need to hide, and what an admission that would be. I faced her down, smiling, although maybe it looked more like a snarl. Is that how you solve your mysteries? You ask everyone you meet to confess to an imaginary crime? No wonder your success rate is high. Who would dare to say no? I'll take that as a yes, she said, staring at me so hard her twin caterpillars became one. 
Her eyes no longer held the slightest allure. They were like laser beams, science fictional weapons able to bore right through the bones of my skull into my brain where her unnatural vision would find the image of something I had done that was so shameful, so deeply buried that even I couldn't remember it. Hannes came through the door then, thank God, carrying a platter announcing dinner was served, followed by his wife carrying a covered bowl. Over the meal, conversation was general on the subjects of food, travel, movies, and then food again, when Marty brought out cheesecake and fruit salad for dessert. It was not the most scintillating conversation. In fact, it was one of the most restrained and boring I could remember ever having around that table, as if we were four random strangers forced to share in a crowded restaurant. When Hannes left the room to make coffee, there was a sudden silence until Marty turned to speak to Grace as if I wasn't there. How's job hunting? Any luck? Grace shook her head. Still at the charity shop? Two days. They'd have me for more hours, which would be great if I was getting paid. But, you know, I need to make some money. So your dream detecting doesn't pay? I don't know what possessed me to jump in with that. Marty stared hard at the other woman. You told him? The chair creaked as Grace leaned back and crossed her arms. Her face was flushed. She spoke flatly. I had a feeling he might need my help. What? Marty's voice rose almost to a wail. You're still doing that? You never told me! Hannes poked his head through the door. Stop it! No fair having fun without me! Marty's hair was messy, her lipstick eaten away, her face as red as Grace's, but on her it looked good. Oh, honey, you wouldn't believe it, but Gracie, she's still... You know, you remember that dream thing she did? She groped with her hand in the air above her head. Grace looked at me and said earnestly, I don't do it for money. I would never... It would be wrong. It's, it's a gift. It would be wrong for me to try to exploit it. Exactly, Marty exclaimed. Like me and the tarot. I read the cards if someone asks, but I'd never, ever charge money. I'm astonished, said Hannah, deadpan. I thought they only talked about these things in private when all three witches got together. We're not witches. Who's the third? I asked. Remember little Holly? From your wedding? Ah, yes. I recalled the tiny yet perfectly formed maid of honor everyone wanted to dance with. He nodded. The three weird sisters, or former flat sharers, but that doesn't sound so good, does it? I wondered if Grace had been at the wedding, too, and sneaked a look at her. I saw a frumpy, shapeless lump who didn't know how to make herself more interesting. I wondered if the idea of dream investigation had been her own, or if she'd borrowed it from one of her other smarter roommates. She did not notice me looking, just went on staring at nothing, seemingly undisturbed by the queasy excitement roiling around the room, even when Marty shouted, We're not witches! Sorry, darling, how silly of me. You predict the future, and Holly heals people by stroking their auras, and Grace goes into people's minds to affect their dream, and all that is completely ordinary and normal and not at all witch-like or weird. You're horrible. Horribly irresistible. She scowled at him, then giggled. He invited me to help him get the coffee, and I jumped up, happy for any excuse to leave. In the kitchen, I asked, fortune-telling? I'm surprised she's never dealt cards for you. She still has them in a velvet bag. True, she doesn't often get them out these days, hardly ever since we were married. But back then, when she was living with Holly and Grace, they scared me sometimes. I don't mind telling you, those three women in the same room together, looking like they could read your mind and tell your future from the way you sipped your coffee? He shuddered melodramatically. But each girl on her own? A different proposition. I wouldn't want a proposition, Grace, I said sourly. Is that what you thought? She's really my type? 
He gave me a sheepish smile and pressed the plunger down on the cafetiere. Sorry, man. It wasn't supposed to be like this. We'd invited two other people, and at the last minute they couldn't make it. Two? A couple? Sister and brother. Both single. One for each of you, I swear. Well, better luck next time, I sighed, and lifting the tray of mugs, followed him out of the room. After I went home that night, I did not give Grace a second thought. But she wasn't done with me. I was a turkey farmer, somewhere in the country, rounding up my herd and then driving them, on foot, down a dirt road until I reached London, which looked like it was the set for a low-budget TV version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I sold the big birds to an East Ender in a patched coat and a shabby top hat, Aya, God bless you, governor, <laughs> and took my little velvet bag of gold coins to buy myself a drink, but at this point wintry London morphed into Paris in the spring, so I walked into a sidewalk cafe and ordered un café, s'il vous plaît. It was as I sat there, waiting for my coffee, that I realized, from the nervous clenching in my gut, that I'd been followed. She was sitting at another table, pretending to read a newspaper, and although she looked nothing like the woman I'd met over dinner, she looked like Edith Piaf, or rather like Marion Cotillard playing Piaf in La Vie en Rouge. I knew her. I knew she was on to me. But she couldn't follow me into the men's toilet, so I was able to get away from her quite easily, although there was still some running and dodging down narrow alleys and in and out of shops before I woke up, heart pounding, feeling like I'd had a narrow escape, but with no idea why. Was she the police or a foreign agent? Was I the good guy spy or an innocent who knew too much? Dreams feel like stories, but they leave out a lot of the information we need to make sense of a movie or a book. Another night, another dream. I was in a theater up in the gods, where the rows of seats kept morphing into chutes and ladders, and every time I tried to get out, I ran into a little blonde girl in a blue dress blocking the exit. She looked like Disney's Alice, but when she trained her eyes on me like a twin-bore shotgun, I knew who she really was, and I knew I was in trouble. Another time, in the midst of a ripping yarn featuring neo-Nazi conspirators and a fabled treasure hidden in the heart of an Egyptian pyramid, I became aware of her again. I never saw her, but I felt the disturbing presence of an outsider, someone female who did not belong, and an uninvited visitor who was spying on me. Only afterwards, awake, thinking it over as I showered and dressed for work, I became convinced that it was Grace, and I began to wonder what she was after and how to get rid of her. On my way home that night, I'd been working late, required to be on hand for a conference call with partners in other time zones, I stopped to buy a few things. It wasn't the store where I usually shopped, but I just remembered there was almost nothing in my fridge when I'd spotted a sign for Morrison's and nipped in. I found Grace in the wine aisle, inspecting the bottles. At the sight of her, I felt disoriented, almost dizzy. That may have been the first time in my life when I genuinely wondered if I was really awake or only dreaming. But maybe it wasn't her. The woman shopping for wine was dressed up and looked quite sexy. Had I become obsessed? Was I starting to see the detective of dreams everywhere I went? She turned her head, and the recognition on her face told me I wasn't fantasizing. Oh, hi! How are you? Do you live around here? Uh, sort of. Not far. But I don't usually shop here. How about you? She shook her head. I'm on my way to a party. I thought I'd better bring a bottle. She wore a snug, scoop-neck top and short skirt, clothes that revealed that she wasn't fat at all perhaps a little thick-waisted, but she did have a pair of enormous breasts. 
Maybe she hadn't wanted to show them off to me, but clearly she didn't feel obliged to keep them hidden all the time. I wondered what made the party she was on her way to now so very different from the dinner at Marty and Hannah's. She was still far from beautiful, but just then she had a glow about her that made up for any small deficiencies in her appearance. I saw her look in my basket, recognized the pathetic shopping of a single man, frozen chips, pizza, bacon, eggs, and a loaf of bread, and felt suddenly defensive, almost angry at her presumption in judging me, spying on me. Without pausing to think, I asked her, How do you do it? She looked honestly bewildered. The dreams. Before I got it out, I realized how utterly idiotic my question was. She hadn't done anything. This meeting was coincidence. My dreams were my own. I stalled and fumbled and finally managed. I was just wondering. You, you said you were a dream detective. I, I guess you were joking. Oh, no, it wasn't a joke. She looked a bit apprehensive. It was true, but I really don't know why I said it. I, I don't usually tell people. Marty knows, because I used to do it when we were living together, but not anymore. I know that's not true. I kept my accusation to myself, though, and only said, Yeah, it's odd. I've never heard of a dream detective before. She cleared her throat and glanced around at the ranks of wine bottles. No, that's not surprising. Neither, neither had I. I guess I made it up. I was sharing a house with two friends, one red cards and one red auras. They did it to help people, and it was kind of cool, and I wanted something I could do, so she shrugged and moved away from me to read a price label. But how did it work? Did people invite you into their dreams, or did you just kind of dream your way inside their heads, or what? Now she was staring at me. How... How did you do it, the dream detecting? People told me about their dreams, and I interpreted them. What did you think? Her eyes widened, and I could see that she knew perfectly well what I had thought, and I realized how crazy it was. Why had I imagined for a moment that this less-than-ordinary woman could see inside my brain, even enter my dreams to spy on me? To distract her from my idiocy, I asked another question. And it worked? She shrugged. People seemed to think so. They liked it anyway. It was something I could do. It seemed vaguely useful. I had a lot of free time and no money. So why did you stop? I mean, you must still have a lot of free time and no money. And since you're looking for a job, why not create your own employment? You'd have it to yourself. You'd be the expert, the only dream detective in England. Oh, shut up. What did I ever do to you? I was surprised to realize she was angry. I hadn't meant to offend her, but she wouldn't let me explain. You don't know anything about it. You think it's a joke, but it's not. No, I don't think that. I, I really do take you seriously. That's why I told you I couldn't charge money for using this gift. It would be wrong. It's not a job. It's a calling. Have you ever seen a rich and famous so-called psychic? What they're like? Do you think I'd ever want to be one of those media whores? Sorry, I said, holding up my hands as if her shining eyes were loaded guns. Sorry, I, I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't mean anything. She grabbed a bottle off the shelf without looking. Forget it. My dream that night began like a road trip, a pleasurable sort of dream I've enjoyed for years. As usual, it was set in the American West, a place I've never seen except in movies, out on a flat, open highway, Route 66 maybe. I was in one of those big, old-fashioned sedan cars from the 1950s, white and shiny, with fins. Inside, the front seat was like a big leather couch, and the gear shift was stuck out the side of the steering wheel. No seat belts, no airbags, just a cigarette lighter and an AM radio tuned to a station belting out songs by Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, Elvis Presley. I myself had more than a touch of Elvis about me. 
my hair in a quiff with long sideburns, wearing tight jeans, cowboy boots, and a black shirt with pearl-covered snaps, a packet of camels squashed into the breast pocket. Sitting behind the steering wheel of that automotive behemoth, singing along to jailhouse rock, driving through the desert towards somewhere unknown, I was free, as purely happy as I'd ever been. Everything was fine, better than fine. It was perfect, until, glancing in the rearview mirror, I spotted a little black dot in the distance. Just in case, I checked my speed. I was right. It was a cop. As the motorcycle drew closer, I told myself not to worry. I was going just under the speed limit. My tax disc was valid. The exhaust and tires were good. There was absolutely no reason for him to pull me over. But he did. Even as I was slowing to obey his preemptory command, I was no more than annoyed. It was only when I stopped, watching the cop dismount, that I remembered there was a dead body in the trunk of the car. I knew I must not panic, that I had to stay calm and convince the cop that I was a good, law-abiding citizen that he could have no interest in detaining. He came over to my window and asked to see my driver's license, told me to get out of the car and step away, keeping my hands where he could see them. I obeyed, but perhaps not quickly enough, or maybe there was something in my attitude he didn't like, because he became more aggressively authoritarian with every passing second. He sneered at my hairstyle, asked where I went to church and about my political affiliations, and when I reminded him that this was America, the land of the free, he said I sounded like a limey bastard and demanded my passport. The tedious, threatening argument went on and on, and I was relieved to wake up before my guilty secret was revealed. I found that dream unusually disturbing. I had no idea whose body was in the boot or how it had come to be there. I didn't even know if I was a killer. In the dream, there had been no guilt or shame attached to the knowledge that I was driving around with a dead body, only anxiety about the consequences if it was found. Did that mean I wasn't a murderer? Or did it indicate the opposite, that my dream persona was a cold-blooded psychopath? Over the next few weeks, the dream continued to haunt me. I'd had recurring dreams before, anxiety dreams in which I was forever doomed to miss my flight, getting lost on my way to take an exam, or finding I had to give a speech while wearing nothing but a skimpy bathrobe. Now, my pleasurable dream of driving across America had been spoiled, turned into another variant of angst. After the first time, as soon as it began, I was obsessed with the problem of how to dispose of the body. Every attempt to find a hiding place was foiled. There were fishermen on the lake, a family having a picnic in a woodland glade, kids playing in the old quarry, people with their prying eyes everywhere I went. Gradually, I came to understand that the body was that of my former girlfriend. But what had actually happened and why I was burdened with her corpse remained unclear. I knew that my past connection with her would make me the prime suspect if her body was discovered, but I didn't actually know how she had died, and I didn't feel guilty. In my waking hours, I thought more and more about this dream, although I wish I could forget it. I wondered if talking to someone might help, and I thought of Grace. Another coincidental meeting would have been perfect, but of course that wasn't going to happen. If I knew where she lived, though... I could make it happen. So, in the end, I phoned Marty. Her address? She made my simple request sound outrageous. I thought I might send her a card. Oh, really? Her skepticism was palpable. All right, then, a phone number. I don't think so. Why not? You tried to match us up, and then I did not. Anyway, that was a month ago, and you clearly didn't get on. In fact, that's not fair. She was quite interesting, actually. Not my type, but I'd like to talk to her again. I've been thinking about her. Well, don't. I wish we were speaking face-to-face -face instead of on the phone. Why do you say that? Did she say something about me? 
Of course not. But there had been a pause before she answered. Did she tell you we ran into each other about a week after dinner at yours? She made a noise and I winced, remembering how Grace had suddenly taken flight. What had she said about me to Marty? How bad was it? I want to apologize. Please, Marty. I'll tell her. When I said nothing more, she sighed. I promise. I'll call her tonight and give her your number, and then, if she wants, she can call you. Grace did not phone me, but about a week later she returned to me in a dream. I was on the road again, and had pulled into a service station to fill the tank. When I came back from paying, there she was, in the front seat. She was a prettier, idealized version of Grace, in a tight-fitting cashmere sweater beneath a trench coat. Her hairstyle was long, old-fashioned, and hanging down in waves, one dipped across her eye like Veronica Lake in an old black-and-white movie. I think the dream was in black-and-white, too. Drive, she said. It was night now, and raining, but there was enough traffic on the road for the passing headlights to reveal her to me in occasional strobe-like glimpses. I hear you've got a case for me, she said. An enormous wave of relief washed over me, and between pulses of beats and the windshield wipers I told her my story. Brief, laconic, just the facts, ma'am. When I had finished, she continued to gaze straight ahead for a long while before saying, her voice low, Pull over. Where? Doesn't matter. Wherever you can. There was an exit just ahead, signposting a roadside picnic area. So I pulled off the highway and drove even deeper into darkness, away from the lights and traffic, to a secluded spot utterly deserted on this dark and rainy night. When I had parked, I turned to face the detective. Light from an unknown source gently illuminated her features. She looked wise and gentle, and I was suddenly certain that she was the one person who could save me from this nightmare. Do you know who killed her? I asked. Of course. Will you help me? Yes. She touched my hand. I'll take you in. What? To the police. You have to turn yourself in. No. It's the only way. I can't. I won't. They'll think I'm the killer. You are the killer. I looked into her eyes, one half obstructed by a silky fall of hair, and I knew she told the truth. Give me the keys, she said. I'll drive. They may not go so hard on you if you confess, if you can explain. But how could I explain something I could not remember? As in a montage of scenes from an old black-and-white movie, I saw my future. The grim faces of the jury, the old judge banging his gavel, the bleak and lonely cell, the walk shuffling in ankle chains to the electric chair, the hood coming down over my face, the soft voice of the priest exhorting me to confess and repent before I died. It wasn't fair. I wanted to live. Driven by desperate need, I reached for Grace. My hands closed around her slender neck and squeezed. My reaction took her by surprise, and my thumbs must have been in just the right spot to inflict maximum damage, for she scarcely even struggled. When she could not draw another breath, she went limp. I continued to squeeze, making sure, venting my rage and terror on her frail and vulnerable neck, and by the time I let go, she was dead. There was no one around to see but I did not want to take the risk that some tired motorist might decide to drive in next to me and consider simply pushing the detective's body out of the car and driving away. Then I had an idea. Why not get rid of both bodies at once? I discovered a shovel in the trunk, and with it I dug a single grave, deep enough to hold them both. I drove away, feeling satisfied, certain that the evidence of both my crimes was now hidden so well that they would never be found, even if in future years someone found the bones... There would be nothing to link them to me.
I woke filled with regret and sorrow and a sense of terrible loss, but also with the cooler, steadying awareness that I had done what I had to do, and it was over. I never had that dream again. Case closed. I would have liked to see Grace's reaction if I told her about it, but not enough to make any effort to find her. More than a year went by, actually closer to two, before I found out what happened to her. Hannes had asked me to meet him in Waterston's at around six. I thought we were going for a drink and had no idea why he'd suggested the bookshop rather than the pub across the street, not even when I saw him standing, grinning, beside a sign announcing a book signing. He pointed at the author's photograph, and still I didn't twig, didn't recognize her until the title of the book, Dream Detective, gave me a clue. Grace Kearney? What, that's your Grace? Not mine, maid. The woman in the photo looked ordinary, was blandly pretty, smiling, heavily made up, with eyebrows plucked into anorexia. Really? That's her? Marty's old friend? She wrote a book? And sold it for a bundle, and that's the least of it. Have you never seen her on TV? First it was guest appearances, but now I've heard she's going to have her own show. I looked at the picture again, trying to summon up a mental image of the woman I'd met to compare it to, and failing. All I could think of was Veronica Lake struggling feebly in my murderous grasp. Are we meeting Marty? I hadn't seen her in months, although I'd tried to keep in touch. The two of them no longer entertained the way they used to, and rarely went out since their baby had been born. <laughs> no way. She doesn't approve. Of what? The book? The book, the TV show, the celebrity clients, the publicity, glitz, bling, dosh. I recalled how badly Marty had responded to Grace's telling me what she did. Grace charges people money to investigate their dreams? You sound like Marty. Yeah, well, everybody's got to make a living. But my dear idealistic wife does not approve. She thinks her old friend has gone over to the dark side. They don't speak anymore. The long-ago dinner party conversation came back to me. Grace said she didn't believe in taking money for her gift. That was the old Grace. She's changed. Even before all this, he gestured at the sign and the bookstore beyond. Something happened. I have no idea what it was, but it changed her. Like, overnight. I felt a chill, an unwanted memory intruding, and repressed it. Does Marty know what happened? He shook his head. I told you, they don't talk. She's dead to me, says my lovely wife. Or was it, she's dead inside? Maybe both those things. He shrugged it off. Want to go for a drink? Maybe I'll just get a book signed first, since we're here. I felt no nervousness about seeing her again, and I was curious. That mousy little girl, a celebrity? Recalling her vehemence about how wrong it would be to take money for using her gift, I realized I had met her in a moment of crisis, sounding out other people and arguing with herself over the decisions she had to make. What I found harder to understand was how her imaginary profession could be taken seriously by so many. A TV show. Picking up a book, taking it to the counter to pay, I reflected that people were eager to believe in all sorts of nonsense. And there was the entertainment argument that justified the regular publication of horoscopes and newspapers and psychics making their predictions on television. Just a bit of slightly spooky fun. Grace had simply tapped into that. Why not? It might upset someone like Marty, who believed she could see the future in her special deck of cards, but a realist like me ought to applaud her initiative. There was a small, orderly queue near the back of the shop. I joined the end of it by myself. Hannes said he'd meet me in the pub across the street, and while I waited my turn, I wondered if Grace would even recognize me, and decided she would not. But I was wrong. When I reached the front of the queue and put the book down, opened before her, she raised her eyes to mine and at once, although there was no change in her mild, professionally pleasant smile, greeted me by name. 
I looked into her eyes and saw nothing there. The emptiness was unsettling. I'm surprised. I didn't think you'd remember me, I said, stammering a little. How could I forget? After what you did? If not for you, I wouldn't be here now. In a way, I owe my whole career to you. A woman standing near the wall behind her took notice and stepped forward. Really? That's very interesting. I don't recall this from your book. Will you introduce us, Grace? Grace went on smiling mildly at me and staring at me with her dead eyes. Without turning, she said, Not now. And although there was nothing threatening or even unpleasant in her tone, it was enough to make the other woman fall back. I don't know what you mean, I said. I think you do. If I said Grace was dead, that the woman signing books was only a simulacrum or some kind of zombie, who would believe me? Yet I knew, and so did she, that this was true. Marty had sensed it as well. She was physically still alive, but dead inside, and it was my fault. Thank you for coming, she said. While I had stood there speechless, she finished writing in my book and now handed it back to me. Thank you. Next. At her command, I stumbled away. I'd forgotten everything else in the horror of my discovery. Forgot I was supposed to meet Hannes and made my way home, alone, across the city. There was no one I could talk to about it, and I could think of nothing else. What had I done to that poor girl? Poor? Just imagine what Hannes might have said. Are you kidding? She used to be poor. Now she's not. She's a success. I can't see how it's anything to do with you. But she thanked you, right? She's changed, sure, and maybe her old friends don't like it, but that's life. Marty alone might have understood, but if I told her what I'd done to dream Grace, she would have hated me, and however much I deserved it, I couldn't bear that thought. When I got home, I took a cursory look at Dream Detective, reading a few pages, wondering if it would give me my answers. But there was something smug and flat and false about the paragraphs I skimmed that killed that hope. I turned back to the title page where I found what I later learned to be an author's standard inscription. My name and dream well. Sincerely yours, Grace Kearney. Her signature was a florid scribble, which I imagined she had worked up as an impressively individual, if nearly illegible, autograph. Yet there seemed to be something wrong with it. A closer look revealed that something had been written in the same space before she signed. Two words, in tiny letters, hand-printed, almost obliterated by the signature. I knew they had not been there when I bought the book, were not on the page when I opened it before her, and they were written in the same pen. Grace herself was the only possible author. Had she started to write a more personal message, then changed her mind? Under the brightest light I had, with the aid of a magnifying glass, I examined the page until the half-hidden words became clear. Save me. Those words have changed my life. I've been asked to do something, and although I don't know how, I will find a way. Some things, once broken, can never be mended. Murder, no matter how deeply the killer repents, can't be undone. Except, of course, in dreams. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Lisa's. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much. It's just been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Hopefully we can get some more work by you and maybe possibly an interview in the future. That would be fantastic. That would make my idea that. Trent, what can I say? It is a gift you have got. And unfortunately, I haven't got it. Thank God. <laughs> Killing cats, my voice there. So, Trent, thank you so much. So that is Starship Sova's 351, put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, apologies for being like a day late. It's just one of them things. It 
great to be quite honest that I did but I just, oh, just couldn't get it sorted out yesterday we have some good news and some bad news still trying to fight desperately keep the the two shows going crime and the pulp well, I don't know it's just I will have more news kind of a little bit further down the line on that and there is something kind of kicking in for the good news something kicking in you will get to hear it a little bit later but there is some good news on the light at the end of the tunnel for just something I'm doing you know what I mean it's certainly not good for fine well hopefully it's good for finances but at this moment we're not in a good place the sofa but you know we're trying our best to keep going that's all I can say don't want to give too much away just yet so until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.